Hey guys, if you haven't heard about Anchor, it is the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me explain. It's free. There are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. And Anchor will distribute your podcast for you. So it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. You can make money for your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. So today in Crime Candy, I decided to do a wrongful conviction case. But a dog is also involved in this. It's... Don't worry, nothing happens to the dog or anything like that. It's sort of, it's really sweet. But that's more later at the end. So, um, without further ado, let's get on right into it. And, um, this is all the information I was able to find on it. Um, so here we go. At about 11.30 a.m., On November 8th, 1979, a black man walked into a newly opened antique store in Gretna, Louisiana. The owner, B.N., a 39-year-old white woman, became suspicious. She attempted to direct him to furniture outside, but he grabbed her from behind and clubbed her in the head with a handgun as she walked to the front door. He then forced her into a bathroom at the rear of the shop and raped her at gunpoint. After he raped her, he led her to the telephone, which had been ringing throughout the attack. As he held her in a chokehold and threatened to shoot her, B.N. completed the call without without alerting the caller. The attacker then forced her back into the bathroom and raped her again. The attacker ordered her not to move and fled. BN used a towel then to clean herself and called the police. Police found three pubic hairs on the bathroom floor and took the towel into evidence. BN said the attacker was black with a medium complexion in his early 20s, about 6 feet tall and 165 to 170 pounds. 170 pounds. She said he wore blue jeans, a dark windbreaker, and a navy blue watch cap. Blue watch cap. BN noted that he rode up to the store on a dark orange 10-speed English racing bike. Police broadcast the description, and about 10 minutes later, police stopped a black man with his jeans unzipped while riding an orange 10-speed bicycle. The man was brought outside the antique store, and BN stood inside and viewed him through the front window. See that the man was not her attacker. Bian was taken to a hospital where a rape kit was taken. On November 30th, 1979, BN saw a man she thought might be her attacker. When police investigated him, they learned he worked at a superior Pontiac, a car dealership. The man's fellow employee said he was a hard worker and was not the type of person to commit a sexual assault. 
On December 18, 1979, police should be in a photographic lineup, including the man from the Superior from Superior Pontiac, but she did not identify anyone as her attacker. In February 1980, police arrested 20-year-old Malcolm Alexander after a woman accused him of sexually assaulting her. Alexander, who is black, told police the sex occurred after he gave the woman money and said it was consensual. Alexander was not charged in that incident, but a detective believed he fit Bean's description of her attacker, even though he was only five foot nine inches tall. So on November, on March, excuse me, March twenty fourth, nineteen eighty, Jefferson's Jefferson's Sheriff's Department, a Detective O'Neill Day Knox Jr. Noir Jr. I'm just going to call him Detective O'Neill. And I'm sorry if that was confusing because I had no idea how to say that. So hopefully, I'm sure I didn't say that right. So I'm just going to go with Detective O'Neill from now on. Ask BN to view another photographic lineup that included Alexander's photo. Detective O'Neill reports said that BN identified Alexander, but RD was tentative. This incorrect eyewitness fits a pattern in wrongful conviction cases. <laughs> eyewitness ID is the number one reason for wrongful convictions. Specifically, 71% of wrongful conviction cases are due to an incorrect eyewitness ID. In fact, in the legal profession, there's growing evidence against the accuracy of eyewitness ID. One in four is erroneous. Sorry if you heard my dog there. He is scratching his ears and they're annoying him. So sorry if that's... <laughs> he does not like... He's having issues with his ears right now. And so I'm going to... I'm going to try to take him to the... I'm getting him to the vet to get them checked because they've been bugging the heck out of him. So I'm sorry if that was what... That is pretty much what you heard. Hey, let go of the phone. And he's my co-host right now. This is Pepper. You heard in the last couple of episodes. He was scratching his ears. Okay, back to the case. In the case of Malcolm Alexander, the witness was both in highly in a highly stressful situation as she underwent a rape and did not have a good line of sight of the attacker, both of which could have led to the misidentification. Three days later, on March 27th, BN viewed a live lineup that included Alexander. He was the only person in both lineup procedures considered improper and suggestive because a person can subconsciously convert the memory of seeing a person in the first lineup into memory of that person being the perpetrator. Detective O'Neill was not present because he was in court, so Detective Marco conducted the lineup. Detective Marco checked off the box possible in his report and wrote it next to tentative. Three hours later, after the live lineup, Detective O'Neill returned from the court and interviewed BN privately. He reported that BN said she was more than 98% sure that Alexander was her attacker, 
when he emerged. Alexander was later arrested and charged with aggravated rape. He went to trial on November 5, 1980. The entire entire trial, from selection to the jury, until the jury's announcement that they found Alexander guilty, lasted one day. Which, nowadays, that sounds incredibly weird and doesn't make a whole lot of sense. It only lasted one day. The trial transcript was only 87 pages long, and his lawyer, Joseph Tosh, did virtually nothing to defend him. It wasn't the first or last time Tosh, Josh Tosh, would fail a client in 99. He was disbarred based on more than 50 incidents where he took fees, did little or frequently nothing, and refused to refund the money. He sounds like a very nice guy. Despite the existence of a rape kit, the towel which contained semen and the three hairs found on the floor where BN was raped, no forensic tests were performed. Neither the prosecutor nor the defense requested any testing on the incident evidence, and I could not find any reason why. It boggles my mind that they didn't do this. Even though his reports on March March 24, 1980, photographic lineup said that BN's ID of Alexander was tentative, Officer, excuse me, Detective O'Neill told the jury that B.N., without hesitation, identified the photograph of Malcolm Alexander as the man who portrayed the rape on her. Oops, sorry, I just lost my train of thought. Just lost my place. Detective Marco, who had conducted the March 27th, 1980 live lineup, so this is the second one, and filled out the report marked possible and tentative, testify that BN had identified Alexander. The prosecution failed to correct the detective's testimony or listed any testimony regarding the police reports listing IDs as tentative. Alexander's Alexander's attorney never asked any questions on cross-examination about these descriptions. Mm -hmm. Years later, attorneys for Alexander would be unable to determine whether the prosecution withheld the reports documenting the IDs as tentative or if Alexander's attorney had the reports but was so incompetent that he failed to recognize, failed to realize their significance. BN testified and identified Alexander as as her attacker. Again, no mention was made that her her IDs were been labeled as tentative. Josh Tosh presented no defense witnesses and never investigated whether Alexander, who had a steady job with a contractor at the time of the rape, had a visible alibi. Josh made no opening statement to the jury, and his closing arguments took up just four pages of the trial transcripts. The jury was sent out to deliberate at 5.20 p.m. By 
16 p.m., just 56 minutes later, mind you, they had voted to convict Alexander, returned to announce the verdicts, and then men dismissed. The judge sends Alexander to life in prison without parole. Josh assured Alexander and his family that he would file an appeal, but he never did. When family members ultimately discovered that no appeal had been filed, they sought the help of another lawyer. The lawyer was granted permission to file an appeal, although the filing deadline had lapsed. The appeal, however, was denied by the Louisiana Court of Appeal. In 1996, Alexander asked the Innocence Project in New York for help after reading a news article about DNA testing. However, a search for the physical evidence was unsuccessful. Court officials informed the Innocence Project that the evidence had been inadvertently destroyed in 1984 during the mass destruction of several hundred boxes of evidence from closed cases. A deputy clerk attributed the destruction to human error, which should not have happened. So yes, you heard that right. Any chance of them, the Innocence Project, using DNA testing on any of the evidence that was collected was unsuccessful because in 1984 there was a mass destruction of several hundred boxes of evidence from closed cases. Oh, that one. I don't know how. This case is just filled with people who don't ever give a shit about anyone. Uh, especially an innocent man behind bars. But anyways, that's just neither here nor there. So the Innocent Project closed the case, but Alexander forged on. In 2004, after Louisiana enacted a post-conviction DNA testing law, he filed a motion for testing, hoping it would spark further searches for evidence. He also filed a federal petition for writ of habeas corpus. In 2013, his efforts were rewarded when the Jefferson Parish Sheriff's Department Crime Lab discovered the hairs recovered from the bathroom floor where BN was raped. So the Innocent Project and the prosecution agreed to DNA testing on the hairs in 2015, and testing was performed in 2016. The test, sh- the test showed that all three hairs came from the same person, and Alexander was excluded from the hair source. In 2017, the Innocent Project, joined by the Innocent Project New Orleans, filed a motion to vacate Alexander Alexander's trial defense attorney to provide an adequate legal defense. The most reasonable conclusion is that the hairs originate from the man who repeatedly raped BN from behind on the floor in the very location where those hairs were collected, the petition said. On January 30th, 2018, Alexander's conviction was vacated. Judge Juneberry Derensburg, 
interesting name, dismissed the charge and ordered Alexander released after spending nearly 38 years in prison. Innocent Project lawyers Barry Sheck and Vanessa Potkin expressed gratitude to the prosecution and the Jefferson Parish Sheriff Department. The DA's office and the sheriff's office were very cooperative in trying to see what happened, Sheck said. We're very appreciative of this. As he left the courtroom, one of the first questions was, What about my dog? And now we'll find out what happens with this dog. This dog was a puppy he raised behind bars. She was born April 22, 2017 as Alexander was in the last phase of a decades-long fight to prove that he never belonged in prison. This puppy was part of Angela's formal, formal dog-related programs, including mm-hmm. one in which prisoners mm-hmm. trained service dogs for veterans. Mm-hmm. Angola, the country's mm-hmm. largest maximum security prison, is a working farm with many animals. It's often made headlines for its annual rodeo and a short-lived, short-lived experiment using wolf hybrids as guard dogs. Sorry about that. My dog just had a really bad allergy cough. I know. You got allergies, but it's okay. A few prisoners are allowed to have pets. In 2017, Alexander had one of these pups. My ass, my friend asked me if I wanted a dog, and I said, Hey, man, I love to have a dog, recalls Alexander. A pet to go home with because I knew I was getting out at that point. Alexander's supervisor said he could keep the sleek black puppy with the white foot at his workplace, the prison metal shop, and the wood shop. We call her in, Alexander told the AKC in a phone interview, but her name is Innocent. I was innocent, and she was innocent. When the puppy came into his life, Alexander had just filed the last of the string of bids for his freedom. I used to tell her, look, we're going to be free. We won't be here our whole lives. We have to be patient. She cleared my mind from thinking about the institution. In became my family. Perhaps most importantly, the brown-eyed pup helped prepare him for life outside. To provide... Sorry. To survive in prison, Alexander had to become very wary and hard on his feelings. <coughs> in the institution, you meet some weird people, and they're not all nice, he says. They say a dog is a man's best friend. In instilled loving care back in me, that compassion, it was very comforting. In became my best friend during my last year there. They formed a tight bond during the eight-hour workday when they were always together. On Alexander's breaks, they would play and do some training. He had grown up with large dogs, mostly German Shepherds, and had been around other dogs at Angola. He knew about training and what he wanted to teach her. In's commands were straightforward. Stand here, come when I call you, don't eat that, and lay down. I never wanted to make her roll over or do tricks. I wanted her to free her mind. Alexander says, being in the institution, everything you do is controlled. I didn't want that for her. I wanted her with a range of freedom as much as I could allow her to have. 
A day after Alexander was freed, staff from the Innocence Project fetched in from Hangola. It had been only one day, but in leaped into his arms as if they'd been separated for years. Him being with her is all good. I like that he had a pet with him in prison, says Brenda, a dog lover. And when he got her, she jumped all over him, I said. Well, she comes before me. Both had a lot to learn about life outside. Alexander had to figure out how to navigate a world that revolved around computers, cell phones, and internet technologies that did not exist at the time of Niskan's incarceration. Because... He's been locked up since 1980, which to me is just blows my mind that it was 28 years. I think, yeah, 28 years. No, sorry, 38 years since he's been incarcerated. That just blows my mind that I just can't think of that and Oh my god, it's so weird. It's like he... 38 years ago, there wasn't texting, there wasn't really internet or anything like that. It's just... Oh, I just can't think of that. It creeps me out. You're okay. I know. This is making you sad, too. I know. Similarly, In needed some essential lessons. In prison, she was in a kennel or workroom when Alexander was not around. He couldn't be with her through the night because she was not allowed in the dormitory. That made it impossible to house train her properly. There were a few accidents. <coughs> Luckily, she quickly learned the appropriate etiquette for her new home. Now when she wants to go out, she barks, he says. Soon they are both getting used to their new situation. Alexander got a job as a pump operator for a local drainage department and became an emergency responder in cases of floods or other disasters. Inn has learned to be at ease on busy streets with lots of noise and people. They revel in the city's lively festivals, especially the Mystic Crew <coughs> Ar- Barkus. Also known as the Mardi Gras, Mardi Gras Dog Parade, held in the French Quarter since 1993, which is adorable. In 2019 and 2020, Inn was honored as princess as a princess royal. She and Alexander rode on a float, wore purple ground and gold beads, and happily greeted dogs and dog lovers along the route. I can do without the Mardi Gras and just give me the dog parade, he says. Some of the best times are when they wander side by side, going fishing, taking long walks, or visiting a dog park. Being out here with her and us being in there together, it's like saying we came through a hard time together and now it's like running on the easy road. Where we can go and come as we please, Alexander says. Alexander likes to take off Inn's leash and let her walk free when they find themselves in a quiet, safe place with few people or other animals. She never strays too far from me, he says, and she always makes it her business to come back and see where I'm at. He was waiting outside the courthouse where his mother, sister, son, now grown grandson, and other family members were. 
Also, there was Brenda, his middle school sweetheart, and the mother of his child, and they had married within months of his release. In May 2019, Alexander filed a claim for compensation from the state of Louisiana. And in previous, and I think I've done one other case where um, a wrongful conviction um, case where they sued the state, but the state found, I think it was, yeah, no compensation for so many years behind bars, 21 years, I think it was. I don't, don't quote me on that, but um, it wasn't successful. And unfortunately, I don't have any. <laughs> I have no idea what happened with that case, so who knows? They probably most likely did not have an, uh, did not give many money. But um, anyways, I thought that was an interesting story of um, wrongful conviction of spending thirty years behind bars, and um, I hope you guys thought it was interesting. Bye.